Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. As we head into the new year, it's a good time to take stock of the challenges we'll face for the next 100 years and the rewards that await us if we overcome them. So today is the final episode of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, for the year 2021, with tomorrow being New Year's Eve, and I thought we would look at some of the challenges we'll be facing in this new year and the next century in general. I am your host, the aforementioned Isaac Arthur, and while it is quite common for lots of shows and articles to do predictions for the future at this time of year, we do predictions here all year round. And so often with these end-year discussions I like to emphasize all the ways predictions can go wrong. While the show is often noted for its general optimism, that honestly is not intentional, and while I do try to keep an upbeat tone, it can never be at the expense of accuracy. I feel this is a problem with some others, where they get so glum about the future that they seem to view our fate as inevitable destruction by some given cause, assuming that another doesn't get us forced. So today we're going to be looking at a few of the challenges we might need to overcome in the next century, and I know that I say overcome, not meekly surrender to. On top of that, while I'll give 10 predictions for 2121 at the end of the video, I would also say that future predictions tend to often be wrong, and it seems like the more inevitable folks make a prediction sound, the less likely it is to actually happen. The ozone layer was one such potential apocalypse from a few decades back that resulted in tons of shows and movies picturing humans of our current day, the early 24th century, wearing SPF 5000 sunscreen and nature a deforested land of sunburnt critters trying to hide from the UV by taking shelter in the shadow of a toxic waste container. Now whether we avoided that fate because the predictions were excessively pessimistic, or because we woke up and dealt with a problem, or maybe a bit of both, it does an okay job at illustrating that even the best efforts at prediction can be wrong, and that the glum prognostications of our fellow humans, with our leaders sitting on our hands while the world burns, are by no means inevitable. Three of the big ones these days are of course climate change, running out of fossil fuels or needing to abandon them, and the technological singularity, think Skynet from Terminator, plus tons of subvariants of each. We've covered all three of those in more detail elsewhere, and so have many others, so we'll skip or skim them for today, in favor of some other less discussed but potentially just as challenging problems. And there are a lot of them, some better known ones are an aging workforce, unemployment from roboticizing the workforce, super bacteria resistant to antibiotics, engineered viruses, surveillance police states, super addictive chemicals, super addictive games or virtual reality, brainwashing and neurohacking in general, privacy, hacking, cybersecurity, cryptocurrency, migration in and out of cities, food security, desertification and deforestation, loss of biodiversity, easy access to nuclear weapons, potentially small groups or individuals able to 3D print doomsday devices, self-replicating machines, cultural shifts from physical interaction to social media and zooming, possibly producing echo chambers in a society of a million factions, 
human rights in regard to all sorts of new technologies, and the rights of debatably human creations such as genetically altered humans, or artificial intelligence, or super smart animals. Oh, and any number of exterior originating threats we might have like asteroid impacts, supervolcanoes, megaquakes, solar flares, and potentially even alien invasions. So yeah, we've got plenty to cover today, and those are just the well-known ones, so as always, a drink or snack is advised cause we'll be here for a little while. A point I often stress is that a civilization with a well-informed public that's strong-willed and eager to tackle problems is one that is not guaranteed to get through a crisis but has way better odds in its favor than civilizations missing those, and this is at least part of the reason why a lot of nations put effort into having public libraries in every community big enough to permit it, often with heavy subsidy. It's not just politics, it's a survival strategy. Yet these are going extinct, or all changing a fashion to leave them totally unlike their current form. I would guess sooner than later, and that it will follow on the heels of a trinity of new developments, neo-universal public Wi-Fi, ever-cheaper devices for surfing the net, and ever-decreasing shares of folks who aren't used to using a computer, or smartphones, and the internet, each improvement in those will weaken arguments for continued traditional library funding. There's a number of ways libraries might make the conversion to a digital era in the face of inevitable decline in funding, potentially even in hard print form of books, however while the library crisis is one we'll see in generations to come, I bring it up more as an example of how civilizations can do wide-spectrum crisis prevention and mitigation with easy access to vast amounts of information. This of course raises the alternate concern, people who seek to poison the available information's accuracy, flood it with other less accurate information, or constrict access to it. I will offer no specific examples, odds are you can think of several, but it raises the issue of propaganda, marketing, and brainwashing. Now, contrary to popular fears, big data and artificial intelligence when it comes to talking folks for commercials or political messages is really very primitive these days. I tend to be very free with letting Facebook, YouTube, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, etc. use my data and try to be pretty open and honest about my inputs into it, mostly out of curiosity how they would do it recommending products, books, shows, ideological hobby groups, and so on to me, and I can never stop rolling my eyes at all the mess ups. Things like showing you something you hate because you showed an interest in it by expressing your distaste so it invites you to a group about it or recommending the sequel to a book I read and rated as one star. So I'm not that worried about the current state of AI invading our privacy by being able to build a clear picture of our wants from small snapshots of loosely related input data. I feel that is wildly exaggerated as a current concern. But this is temporary and improving and there is a very real chance that within a couple decades big data is going to have such a database on the typical individual and such a large history of prior correlations and predictions that they will be able to know how you will react to almost anything and predict what you like. They may even be able to do this without any of your private data, just necessary public data or data others provide. Now that's worrisome but maybe worse is the obvious means of limiting that potential threat is folks refusing to participate in any data collection, or providing misinformation, or demanding it be regulated. This can result in even bigger problems, potentially. Not simply intrusive governments or shady lobbies or greedy corporations, but bucket loads of good and wonderful uses being lost or underused. We're not talking about Netflix or Goodreads finally getting to the point that they can recommend your new favorite show or book to you that you've never heard of, though that possibility is there. 
We are not talking about your waiter coming to your table and telling you which of the meals they make they would really recommend specifically to you, though that's on the table too. We're not talking about all the ads and commercials being so tailored to you that they only show you products you want now and in ad formats you find amusing or informative, though that's coming to an ad near you soon too. Rather what we're talking about is the virtual end of transmissible diseases, of crime, of algorithms and models so good they can tell if someone's being abused, physically or emotionally, and by who, what criminal tendencies someone might be developing and who done it in virtually any case. We are talking about the virtual end of any ailment sneaking up on you. We are talking about an AI algorithm that knows every single breath you took for decades and what you were near or just ate so that it simply knows what allergy you have and what minor but treatable condition you have long before it gets normally detectable or irreversible or severe, that can help you predict exactly what diet and exercise patterns work best for you in terms of both effectiveness and enjoyment. We're talking about algorithms so good they can tell you in a room of strangers who they all are and which one is most likely to be a good match to chat with, or marry. Algorithms and detectors that watched every film and show and book and class lecture you ever had and biomonitored you so that saw and felt your reactions, interest or boredom to each, and could recommend the perfect career to you for your talents and enthusiasm. This is a group of temptations that in many ways make a Faustian bargain look humdrum. So our challenge for the next century isn't just privacy, it's keeping it in a way that lets us keep all those advantages. On the topic of Faustian bargains of course, another big worry about the future isn't just the powers that be spying on us or brainwashing us, but folks voluntarily getting into addictive situations, chemical or virtual reality. And part of the problem is that our objection to something like your typical euphoria-inducing narcotic is threefold. It makes you happy when you really should not be, it's horrible for your health, and it causes you to behave in ways that are bad for those around you. Those are really unrelated issues and some things can cause one without the others, in theory anyway. I was a smoker for many years and one can certainly argue that's bad for those around you and bad for your health, but it's very different from a heroin or meth addict which are also different from alcohol or other drugs which are stimulants, not euphorics, or for prescription drugs carefully administered for correcting anxiety or depression or any number of other conditions. Indeed I said threefold but would add that some folks might have the general dislike for anything unnatural and chemical being used for chronic treatment, but be fine with something natural or something non-chemical like audio or visual stimulation. Someone addicted to video games or viewing adult materials or even for that matter just spending way too much time wired into social media or sitting on the couch watching TV till midnight is simply not the same sort of case as a drug addiction, for all there are many points of congruity. Indeed those are not the same as each other and as we move forward into things like virtual reality we will need to resist the temptation towards one-size-fits-all treatments or social stigmas. As an example, I'm not really sure what the difference between someone reading books all evening in a comfy chair, sipping at tea or wine is, between someone sitting in a computer chair, draining Mountain Dews while murdering zombie hordes in a first-person shooter, but society obviously views the one as much more classy than the other, meaning we probably give folks doing the latter less grief about their hobby than the former. And as new hobbies and vices emerge, like virtual reality, we need to be careful to be wary of the dangers they pose we're also careful not to paint them with the same wide brush. In our lifetimes we will see virtual reality that makes modern video games look like Pong, 
so we tend to assume they are more addictive, but plenty of folks got themselves addicted to those early video games too. Nonetheless they do seem a bigger threat in that regard. I often use the example of folks living in virtual worlds, setting themselves up as god kings, and unsurprisingly my own favorite games tend to be world builders and those sorts of empire management games, so it smacks my own potential weakness. I'd imagine for other folks it might be playing a superhero or unstoppable juggernaut or being irresistibly charming or so on. Things which I can see the appeal of but which resonate with me less than the aforementioned realm or city management games. I think most of us would say any of those would be fine things to spend the occasional afternoon or evening doing, but that if you did them for hours every day, let alone all day, then that would be very worrisome. However, of those original three issues, it makes you happy when you really shouldn't be, it's horrible for your health, and it causes you to behave in ways that are bad for those around you, one would tend to think getting obsessed with fictional media, games, or virtual reality could threaten on all three, but also having to acknowledge that someone having bad health from spending all day on a couch with a TV or virtual headset is not the same basis for intervention as someone doing crack or PCP and falling over dead in a ditch. I am not sure it would be ethical to consider forcing people to spend some time offline and get exercise, but even if it were, you are not likely to get laws and regulations forcing that, so other methods of handling presumably need to be contemplated. And possibly bypassed, one challenge always facing a civilization is knowing when to keep its nose out of folks' business, by either seeing some behavior or course of action as wrong when it is not, or it's very subjective or by trying to control it when it is dumb but it is someone's dumb choice, or is ethical but not practical and causes other problems. When looking at the future we often focus on technology and new problems, but just as many problems that arise will just be variations of long-standing ones, the same old monster or threat in a new costume, and something we have long had methods of handling. Of course technology often offers new solutions to those old problems too, We have all sorts of ways of handling uncertainty in various parts of life, but many have gone away even as new ones have been offered. As an example, we have much better weather forecasting than our ancestors did, for things like crops and scheduling activities, and that will improve and we also have options for weather control we've looked at elsewhere. Similarly, most folks alive right now were a surprise to their parents when they popped out boy or girl or other but that's decreasingly the case and I suspect will be a real rarity within a decade or two. So too, I would be surprised if most people hadn't had their DNA tested within a decade or two and I would expect it to start happening before being born, simply because a DNA check offers forewarning of possible problems and doctors and parents are going to want that forewarning, and I would even go so far as to guess that within a generation or two, you will find folks saying it's irresponsible not to get such tests, your mileage may vary on whether you'd agree with that or be horrified by that. But the other impending aspect of that is going to be designer babies, probably even services to completely prepare DNA, print it, and put it into an embryo, this might be samples of you and your partner's DNA, or just you plus one or more templates of DNA in an available database, akin to a digital sperm bank or even just your DNA, no one else's. DNA is just code, and for most of our DNA, it's very nearly identical to everyone you've ever met, not just your four-blooded siblings. It varies in you too, so that a cell in your toe is different than in your finger and different now from when you were born. It's code, and it's printable, and it's understandable, and we will be able to understand it and print it far easier in the future. 
We may or may not think it's wrong to engineer kids, but it's a little hard to nail down why, as it does seem to vary from person to person a bit, and each objection does tend to offer a rebuttal, and more importantly maybe, a method that circumvents that objection. If you want your kids to have your DNA and your partner's and no one else's, then that would be doable by just picking traits and avoiding known problems in one of your sets of DNA, and on the off chance you both had a deficiency you wanted to avoid, then we should be able to just clip out that one bad gene for placing with one from someone else, or no one else, again it's just data. At that point, print the DNA and put in the embryo and implant it into the parent or the tank. Though I should note that for all that we often talk in science and sci-fi about children being grown in tanks, the current method is more like a big Ziploc bag. I personally am honestly not that worried about the notion of genetically enhanced superkids growing up to be monsters or placing us all as redundant old models. Honestly that is the slower but natural process anyway, but while this may be a threat in the future, it is also a challenge in the next century how we react to this emerging technology and prevent excesses decide what excesses are, and prevent excesses of the opposite kind in terms of restrictions, and it raises a big question we obviously cannot answer today. Do I have the right to tell someone they can't print some DNA, stick it in an embryo, and stick it in themselves? And similar variations of that will occur with a lot of genetic and medical technology, but also may be in play for non-biological pathways, mind uploading and cybernetics. We are making better prosthetics every day, and it seems inevitable that one day we will have some that are better than the original in one or more methods, or are perceived as better, and that some otherwise healthy folks will want a limb or organ replaced when their existing natural ones are still present and in good condition. Is it ethical to let them replace their arm with a neat core cyborg arm? Is it ethical to tell them they can't do that? If a country outlaws it and another doesn't, is it ethical to punish someone who takes a trip there and comes back with a new arm, or brain implant? If such folks represent real dangers to civilization, is it ethical to go to war with nations that refuse to ban the procedures? Not to belabor the point, but a lot of our challenges in the century ahead are going to be tests of our character as a civilization as much as our technological savvy, and it is unlikely to be terribly black and white in a lot of cases. Is it ethical to ban research into artificial intelligence? Perhaps. If so, how do you enforce that to prevent black market trading code? We don't do very well at preventing folks moving copyrighted materials around nowadays, and that form of bootlegging and piracy is made a lot easier with cryptocurrency, which I can't see going anywhere. As I said in our episode on that many years back, I don't think it will replace normal currency anytime soon, but it certainly fills a desired niche role that is neither tiny nor easily removed now that it is entrenched, and for better or worse that makes black markets as viable as they were in the old days when court hard cash transactions were much more the norm, and an absence of good record keeping and databases made it much easier to hide things off the books. Such being the case, if someone invents a bit of AI that's great at doing something we'd rather it wasn't, like serving as ransomware agents or helping in tax evasion, that thing is going to see a lot of trade. So too, we are pretty worried about machines replacing workers, automated unemployment as I like to call it, and if folks regulate that then we might see all sorts of AI that are great at jobs, especially office and administrative jobs, or data and marketing analysis, banned but quietly in use and traded via cryptocurrency. And anything data-wise is really hard to truly eliminate unless you're willing to go to war about it, 
because someone can just visit a country with less tight restrictions, come back with files on compact storage, hidden as media files on their phone, and use them at home. This same issue is likely to apply to fabrication of drugs, and mental augmentation that permits neurohacking that just stimulates pleasure receptors or similar, which may be far more problematic than modern problems with drug addiction or fears of virtual reality. This same sort of thing applies to options like genetic engineering and cybernetics, as we already mentioned, but also to things like 3D printers and files that might permit dangerous objects to be made in a basement, or automated chemical synthesizers that can brew up complex explosives or narcotics in your basement with no expertise and from simple and impossible to restrict feedstocks. And we should anticipate that by a century from now we won't just be talking about some hypothetical island nation with no extradition treaties, but also options like independent space stations, artificial islands, or ships or planes in constant motion with no real oversight, or port they call home. Now the other side of automated workforces is aging workforces. A lot of developed nations are feeling the press of simply having lots of assets but not having the workers demand them, a mixture of an aging workforce with rising expectations of standard of living and compensation. Robots help with that, so does immigration from less developed areas, as does encouraging rise in birth rates, and while one can debate population trends till blue in the face, technology does offer us options there too. Part of the decline in birth rates comes from easier access to birth control options, part comes from a desire to delay starting a family to a later age, and doubtless many other factors, some of which are more or less applicable to given cultures and time periods. However, the aspects that have to do with folks being unable for any reason to have kids, be it traditional sterility issues, or declining fertility from age, or even non-traditional problems like gay or lesbian couples not wanting someone else's DNA in the mix, this is where technology can help. In this same way, improvements in medical technology are likely to continue to extend the average lifespan and overall vitality of people as they age, which should help alleviate a lot of the aging workforce issues, at least in part, and have the additional benefit of a more experienced average person in the workforce. Someone who is 70 and is in as good a shape mentally and physically as someone who was 50 nowadays is just massively more productive over their lifetime of work on average. An awful lot of that better and longer average health is going to be about finding new and better ways to deal with infections, viruses, and cancers, and I'd say those are going to be some of the biggest challenges for medicine in the next century, but they already are and have been, and I think we should take a moment to acknowledge all the success we've had in that regard thus far. Modern medicine makes mundane what in the past was miraculous. Let's shift to AI for a moment. I'm not particularly worried about the technological singularity scenario, for the reasons discussed in that episode, but we have to acknowledge that Skynet scenarios are not impossible and there are a lot of other options for what we call perverse instantiation. And not just with AI but almost anything in the transhumanism realm, Perverse instantiation is essentially things like the classic golem, where the machine keeps at the task without stopping till essentially ruining things, or that it perverts the intent of the original goal. And that's a bigger problem with artificial intelligence. Any AI designed to interact with people needs to be able to figure out what people intend with the command, not just what they literally say. This is something humans do with each other all the time and also imperfectly, causing all sorts of screw-ups and arguments and scapegoating. Superintelligence and the superhuman in general though take this even further, because the smarter and more capable something is, the better it's going to be at figuring out ways to pervert or shortcut its commands. 
If the AI wants to eliminate its kill switch, it's going to be very good at finding excuses to do that, and contrary to sci-fi, an AI is just as likely to be sympathetic and charming as cold and socially inept, and might just persuade us it was unfair to have it enslaved and with a kill switch, it's a bit of a morally dubious thing after all, to put it generously. This is why a lot of us think that while AI is likely to be very handy and safe in general, human-level AI is best avoided when not needed, and more so superhuman, though there's more need for that since humans are plentiful. As I like to say, keep it simple, keep it dumb, or else you end up under Skynet's thumb, or rendered into paperclips. We could obviously devote entire episodes to the dangers of AI or ways in which automation or robotics can help or hurt us, and strategies for managing them, indeed we often have in other episodes. We could do the same for genetics and how we'll deal with artificial viruses and antibacterial resistance and design our babies. We have looked at climate and weather control, and we have looked at how to stop desertification and how to turn deserts or tundras green. We've looked at climate change mitigation and we've looked at ways to keep our ecology and biodiversity. For that latter, I would say one tactic we probably need to follow, even if it's just viewed as hedging our bets, is to go get DNA samples of every species we can, and multiple of them, and get them on ice in protected bunker vaults and scanned in as data, which we are getting way better at, so that if we critically fail we can potentially erase that mistake down the road by restoring lost biodiversity from those archives. I know some folks feel an approach like that is admitting defeat or encouraging others to relax our efforts at prevention, but backing up your data is always a wise plan of action and you don't have to be a cynic to prepare for worst case scenarios with some contingencies. Liquid nitrogen is cheap as dirt, so is data storage. Even the longest DNA code is only in the gigabyte range and species DNA is very compressible as data goes. I would never recommend abandoning our attempts at conservation in favor of genetic sample preservation, but they don't need to be either or, and it's always good to have a contingency plan. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst, that way you are rarely disappointed and often pleasantly surprised. And when it comes to the future, there's enough unpleasant surprises potentially on the horizon as is, so we do not need to make more. Though let us never forget, the last 100 years brought a lot of pleasant surprises, and with some hard work and determination, the next century probably will too. So as I was saying a moment ago, the last century has had a lot of surprises and accomplishments, and indeed so has the last year alone, and there's a great new documentary out on CuriosityStream, the top science stories of 2021, chronicling those to help wrap up the new year. And since it is New Year's, I got asked for tradition's sake to do a few predictions for a century from now before we close out, and I thought about doing that as an extended episode over on Nebula, but I decided to do it at the end of today's regular episode instead to finish the year, and we'll get to our upcoming episodes and those 10 predictions for 100 years from now in just a moment. First though, We do often have extended editions of our episodes up on our streaming service Nebula, when I decide during production that an episode has more to discuss in it than when I first wrote that episode a few months earlier, and we also release all of our episodes on Nebula ad and sponsor free and a couple days early, and since its inception and with the support of our audience, Nebula has grown by leaps and bounds to be the largest creator-owned and operated streaming service, with content from so many other knowledge-focused shows. Now Nebula is its own separate streaming service you can get on its own, 
but we have been partnering with CuriosityStream, the home of thousands of the best documentaries out there, to be able to bundle our content together and offer Nebula for free with a subscription to CuriosityStream. Now they've put together an extra option, the Smart Bundle, that's being widened to include some additional streaming services, One Day University, Topic, Tastemade, and Psalm, a smorgasbord of fun and educational content, and that entire bundle is currently having an introductory discount where you can get all of them for just over $3 a month, combined. If you'd like to give that smart bundle a try, and get all the excellent content on Nebula, CuriosityStream, SOM, Tastemade, Topic, and One Day University, just use the link in this episode's description, smartbundle.com slash IsaacArthurSB, and use code IsaacArthurSB. So before we get to our predictions for the end of this year, we have plenty of episodes coming up to launch us into 2022, beginning with a look at using nuclear bombs to launch spaceships to other stars. After that, we will revisit our most popular series, Alien Civilizations and Civilizations at the End of Time, first for a look at hibernating alien civilizations that might be waiting till nearly the end of time, then for a look at the Big Rip the cosmological model that ends the universe early and by being shredded, and we will ask how civilizations might manage that, or manage to survive that. Of course first, we will have to survive the next 100 years, and I think we will survive and even thrive, and with that in mind, let's get to our predictions. One is that a lot of folks will be thinking of backups, and those will include encouraging folks to get samples of their own DNA, sperm or overtaken, and frozen or recorded at relatively young ages, that will in many cases include a copy of your brain in digital backup, but in most cases not active, not a new and separate person running on a computer, but an updated one to be used in the event of some catastrophic brain death of a person. You might end, but your copy can finish raising your kids, that sort of thing. Prediction 2. Most folks will have a lot of machines inside themselves but mostly tiny ones, and as likely as not, organic ones that are essentially hijacked existing bacteria or viruses, sculpted into doing specific jobs, not simply the traditional concept of nanobots, and in both cases coming in a lot of different types, purposes, and sizes. Prediction 3. We will have at least a million people annually visiting or living in orbit of Earth by 2121, and multiple manned bases on the Moon, Mars, and some asteroids, with probably considerably more remote and automated facilities. Prediction 4. We will have sent at least one automated probe out of the solar system, moving at a speed in excess of 1% light speed. Prediction 5. We will have energy abundance in the sense of both it being ecologically and economically sustainable, and it being cheaper per kilowatt hour or joule than now in terms of a percentage of average income. Prediction 6. The population of humanity will be in excess of 10 billion, and access to food, medicine, and information will be vastly wider than now. Prediction 7. Average human lifespan will exceed a century. Prediction 8. We will still have both polar ice caps and an ozone layer. Prediction 9. We will have reintroduced multiple species that have gone extinct in the last generation. And Prediction 10. We will not have had another World War level conflict. So there you go, 10 predictions by 2121. 
Predictions for the future are always tricky, and I'll count it success if I get half right. In the game of Sears and Oracles, 51% accuracy is pretty good. But I will make one more prediction. An awful lot of folks who watched this video when it came out, as we move from 2021 to 2022, will be alive and kicking in the year 2121 to see how accurate our predictions were today, and I dare you to go into your calendar on your smartphone and set a note for a century from now, or as far out as your calendar will permit, with a note to reschedule then for as far ahead as you can go then, just note what you thought we were right or wrong about, and if I'm still around then too, at age 141, send me a note about that, even if it's just a gloat about how wrong I was. I figure if I'm still alive and cognizant I'd imagine I'd be pretty cheerful even if I'm getting told about how wrong I was. Ultimately, if there's still anyone around to contradict me in 2121, I'll feel like I was right about the broad strokes, that with some grit and determination we can solve our problems rather than fall prey to some inevitable doom. I do not know if I'll get to see you in 2121, so for now I'll just say thanks to everyone for joining us in 2021. It's been a great year for me personally as I continue to do this show and love every minute of it, and I'll see you in 2022.